0: Welcome back, everybody, to The Luke Beasley Show. I hope you're doing wonderful on this Thursday. We have some fascinating stories to discuss today, uh, so let's get into it. I want to start off today's show with a couple huge Trump uh, legal-related revelations that have come out uh, in regard to investigations into him that are huge and fascinating. So let's get into the first. A judge has now ruled that Donald Trump knowingly lied, knowingly cited false voter fraud statistics uh, in a court filing. Of course, this is all in relation to his attempt to overturn the 2020 election, trying to do that in many different ways. But one of them was through the courts. And in one of those filings, he, according to the judge and according to emails, the court obtained uh, put claims he knew were false. Right. Statistics he knew were not accurate. That's a crime. That's a crime. Take a look from Politico. Uh, reading, former President Donald Trump signed legal documents describing evidence of election fraud that he knew were false, a federal judge indicated on Wednesday. U.S. District Court Judge David Carter wrote in an 18-page opinion that emails from attorney John Eastman, an architect of Trump's last-ditch effort to subvert the 2020 election, needed to be turned over to the January 6th Select Committee. Those emails, Carter wrote, quote, show that President Trump knew that the specific numbers of voter fraud were wrong, but continued to tout those numbers both in court and to the public. So uh, what Politico goes on to write is that what this was kind of in relation to, the judge was ruling on whether or not John Eastman would have to turn over this batch of emails to the January 6th select committee, or if it was all protected by attorney-client privilege. And what the judge found was some of the material is protected, but some of it is evidence of a likely crime and thus will have to be um, turned over to congressional investigators, which is good and uh, important that that happens. And then Politico writes that in early December, Trump and his legal team filed um, something in Georgia claiming that 10,000 votes who were dead or felons or unregistered um, were counted. And um, then at the end of December, John Eastman emails other Trump lawyers and says, okay, you know those statistics we've been citing? Yeah, I've now, or someone's now made Trump aware and we've now come to the conclusion that these are not accurate, this is not true information we're putting in there. So don't have Trump uh, sign that upcoming claim, right? Don't have Trump put his name on this upcoming filing because he'll be lying. Because he's aware that uh, those statistics aren't accurate, they're lies. There weren't 10,000 dead voters who voted in Georgia. And yet, Trump went forward and in a federal filing, did it anyways. Take a look. Uh, Quote, this is the email from John Eastman. Although the president signed a verification for the state court filing back on December 1st, he has since been made aware that some of the allegations and evidence uh, proffered by the experts has been inaccurate. Eastman wrote an email to colleagues. Quote, for him to sign a new verification with that knowledge and incorporation by reference would not be accurate. However, Trump and his lawyers opted to file uh, the federal complaint using the same numbers that Eastman conceded were inaccurate. So again, to summarize, in previous rulings, uh, the early, early December one, they had used this figure. And then before the federal one, they uh, were made aware that it was not true. And Trump was made aware of that fact and still signed his name to those numbers, of course, perjury. So here is an interesting bit of analysis from a CNN correspondent and one of the things to pay attention to in this is the way that he connects it back to the Georgia investigation as well.
1: What this is is a smoking gun in Georgia. Because if you if you look at what the judge describes here at the e- of these emails is they file a lawsuit, a state court lawsuit in Dece- early December, December 4th, making various allegations about dead people voting, about uh, felons Mm. voting, about unregistered voters um, voting. And by the end of December, they're aware that these allegations are false. And that's the email that the judge quotes here, one of the emails, where Eastman says, the president has since been made aware that some of the allegations um, um, have been inaccurate. And then they go and they make him, they actually, the lawyers go and they have him file a federal lawsuit where the ju- where, 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 Trump, Trump uh, certifies under oath, verifies under oath that these allegations were in fact true. And he, you know, that's, a, that's perjury. And that, that's certainly evidence of federal crimes. But remember, when, when Eastman makes this statement, it's December 31st. What happens three days later, mm. two days later, he makes trump makes the call to raffensburger mm. he 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 makes that famous recorded call infamous report right, call the vote. when he's asking raffensburger demanding raffensburger threatening raffensburger if he doesn't to find exactly 11,780 votes one more.
0: so that's a crucial point because on its own uh, what trump did in the federal court filing was a crime perjury But in a larger sense, wrapped up in the more direct attempt to overturn the 2020 election and the investigation going on to that specifically in Georgia, this is, as the uh, uh, CNN correspondent says, a smoking gun, because what is Trump doing um, on a few days later in that Georgia call to Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state um, of Georgia? He's saying, I need you to find me 11,780 votes, I think was the figure or something close to that. And if this filing is now revealing that behind the scenes, in these emails, Trump was aware, his team was aware that the claims they were making about Georgia were not true, then on that call, what he's doing is that much worse because he's knowingly attempting, uh, with the awareness that the claims aren't true, to convince... The secretary of state of georgia to overturn the election results even though there's no evidence that would back that up even though the evidence they had been citing has now been proven and they are aware that has been proven not to be true yet he did it anyways yeah he called up and said i need you to find me these votes i need you to make me the winner of your state even though i've been notified that's not the case that is huge and the georgia investigation does look like one of the most um, Locked down ones to actually hold Trump accountable. Uh, the other ones actually as well. There's a whole stack of them, but George is one of them. And to me is being, it's the one that I'm watching the most closely because um, I say that I'm watching all of them intensely closely, but it's the one that I care the most about because it's representative of Trump's attempts to overturn 2020 election. And it is so important that that is something he's held accountable because we cannot have a living democracy with figures who get away with doing something like that Um, obviously if there's a federal investigation of that too just as important but Georgia is so crucial to the larger story that hopefully we'll look back on and say all right he did something bad but at least he was held accountable our democracy was shook but it survived instead of the alternative he wasn't held accountable this became the norm and our democracy fell apart. Um, and we're seeing some of the signs of the the latter, which is very, very uh, scary. So this is very huge legal news in regard to Trump. And we will continue to give you updates every step of the way. The Justice Department believes they have enough evidence to charge Donald Trump. But as we're going to look at in a second here, Seems to be a little bit of disagreement behind the scenes um, about when, about, you know, a little bit of this. So we'll look at that. And then in regard to the same investigation, the behind the scenes from the Trump camp about what they should do right now. And a consideration that's pretty interesting. But first, from media, Justice Department prosecutors believe they have sufficient evidence to move forward with obstruction charges against former President Donald Trump, according to a new report. Citing people familiar with the investigation that received the national spotlight after Trump's Mar-a-Lago property was raided, uh, Bloomberg's Chris Strom reported it's unlikely Attorney General Merrick Garland, who would ultimately approve moving forward, would be willing to move forward with just obstruction charges. There are already a group of prosecutors ready to push for charges, though there are also fears about charging a former president, especially when he could be gearing up to run for president again in 2024. FBI agents, according to the new report, are divided over whether charging Trump is actually a good thing. The former president has teased multiple times that he's considering a 2024 run. So they believe they have enough evidence, but there's disagreement behind the scenes um, about whether charging him now is... The right decision and whether that's because of what it's saying is attorney general merrick garland's reason which is hey maybe we need to get a little bit more and charge them with something larger it seems to be or the concern that charging someone who's likely going to run for president is a bad look or seems politicized that's horrible the second reason is absolutely garbage you have to treat this as separated from politics as possible and it seems like they're almost trying to do that by saying, we don't want to charge a foreign president or, or we want to charge someone who's going to run for president likely in the next however many months. But that is also considering politics to a significant degree by making a decision not to. So the best way to go about this is just as much as possible, separate your brain from who he is and just go off the evidence, go off the evidence and make that decision. But it doesn't seem like that's what's happening, and that's very, very upsetting because it's one of the main reasons I was expecting him not to be held accountable, who he is, Um, the power and the uh, prominence of him as a figure. But that's not the way our justice system should work, right? We should have one that can see past your identity and just care about the evidence. Um, And so if they believe they have enough evidence, go ahead and charge them. Now, I understand if you're trying to build a bigger case before doing that. But um, if it's just considering politics, I don't like that at all. Okay, so the second bit of news in regard to the same uh, federal investigation. Donald Trump's team, and one of the reports I saw said because Trump is feeling a little bit beat down and weary of how long this is drawing out and all of those things, is considering, I guess the word would be complying more, better, with the investigation to get it over with and just kind of let it go to its natural conclusion. And part of that is to let the FBI take another look at his Mar-a-Lago residence. Reading from CNN, Donald Trump's legal team is weighing whether to allow federal agents to return to the former president's Florida residence and potentially conduct a supervised search to satisfy the Justice Department's demands that all sensitive government documents are returned, sources tell CNN. In private discussions with Trump's team, as well as court filings, the Justice Department has made clear that it believes Trump failed to comply with a May, uh, May subpoena ordering the return of all documents marked as classified and that more government records remain missing. Uh, some in Trump's inner circle aren't convinced there are any remaining government documents after the FBI seized nearly 22,000 pages when they execute a search warrant on mar a in August. The possibility of allowing federal uh, officials to return to Trump's property, likely with Trump's own lawyers president, is just one option on the table as the Trump team grapples with how best to protect the foreign president uh, from legal jeopardy. No decisions have been Uh, made on that front though. So again, the reasoning behind this can only be speculated. But um, I think at this point, the right decision from a legal perspective, from their perspective, would be to just go ahead and do everything possible. Stop stalling. Let the investigation happen. Let whatever is going to come of it, come of it. And possibly that, you know, will, will lead to the best outcome for Trump. So very interesting there. Um, And we'll see how it all pans out. Liz Truss, Prime Minister of the UK, not for much longer, has resigned. She has decided to resign. Now, this is a sweet moment for me because one of the things she did and kind of what caused her to have to resign right when she got into office is put together this tax cut plan. And we looked at this on the show about how disproportionately, as we see with so many of these conservative ideologues, went towards the top of the uh, UK and the more wealthy individuals of their population and I said this is bad you know this is not going to help the economic problems that they're having yet so often we see in the United States too that's just all their brains can think about cut taxes more for the rich and so she got a lot of backlash for that the markets did not respond nicely and I guess sort of in response to that the lack of a good plan and a good response to the economic crisis they're in um, she is now having stepped down after only I think under 50 days which is incredible what's now their shortest uh, serving prime minister what a bummer but I like that she's in some way being held accountable for putting together a bad plan and what I hope is that this probably won't happen the citizens of the UK will respond to this by not consistently voting um, for individuals who are going to do this type of uh, action, right? So here's her announcing her resignation.
2: Given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. This morning I met the chairman of the 1922 committee, Sir Graham Brady. We've agreed that there will be a leadership election to be completed within the next week. This will ensure that we remain on a path to deliver our fiscal plans and maintain our country's economic stability and national security. I will remain as Prime Minister until a successor has been chosen.
0: Okay. Uh whiplash, I'm sure, for um, people living in the UK (laughs) because it's like two seconds after she was made the new prime minister, she's already having to step down and they're not getting a chance to have a leader settle in and really take the proper actions. It just shows how clearly unpopular she must have been generally or with her own party for in the midst of a crisis when you want to have a stable leader, they're still kicking her out. Um, This is a funny little side-by-side that side, was put together by the recount showing how, I think, just 24 hours earlier, she was so aggressively saying she wasn't going to step down by saying that she's a fighter and not a quitter and then, whoop, never mind.
2: Mr. Speaker, I am a fighter and not a quitter. I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party.
0: <laughs> oh, I love politics. People are so brave until they're not. Good stuff. Here is Joe Biden uh, responding to this news.
3: I think. Well, that's for her to decide but look she was a good partner on Russia and Ukraine and uh, and the British are going to solve their problems and the budget she was a good partner are
0: you concerned Just- about the spillover
3: effects of the US economy given the political and economic no I don't think they're that consequential
4: John,
0: <laughs> I don't think they're that consequential um, probably agree with that on an economic uh, level and then An interesting component of all this, of course the question that's going to get asked after a Prime Minister announces they're stepping down, is who's going to take their place. And you'll never guess who is uh, considering running and seems to be getting some behind the scenes support in doing so, Boris Johnson. Guys, three seconds ago he was stepping down in disgrace and that's who Liz Truss replaced and now she's stepping down and maybe he's going to run for the position. What are we talking about? Boris Johnson, reading from CNN, appears to be on the verge of attempting a stunning political comeback. Allies of the former UK Prime Minister, who resigned in disgrace only three months ago, believe he will stand in the leadership contest that will follow the resignation of his successor, Liz Truss. Two sources who worked on Johnson's last campaign for the Conservative Party leadership in 2019 said he would run again uh, this time. That's just incredibly, incredibly wild. Multiple allies have made the case that Johnson could be a unity candidate who could bring stability to the country despite being forced to quit in July after a series of scandals made his position untenable. Asked how they could justify Johnson's standing to be Prime Minister again, uh, one MP who campaigned for Johnson in the 2019 leadership campaign told CNN, Socialists will destroy our economy, and if you don't understand that, then I genuinely fear for our future. So if that could actually happen, again, I'm not close to as familiar with the, uh, you know, British political reality as I am with the United States, obviously. But if that's something that could happen realistically and there's conversations going on behind the scenes, that would be one of the weirdest political scenes in a very long time. He steps down. She looks at him and says, you know, I'm going to try to take your place and thank you for your service. She steps down and he steps up and says the same thing back to her. Whoa, that's weird. But to me, it shows you that in times like the ones we're in, where many countries at different uh, magnitudes are dealing with the aftermath of the economic situation caused by the pandemic. um, Conservative ideology, at least if it's similar to what we see in the United States, which the tax cut plan put forward by Liz Truss definitely was, is not the way you help people in a time like this it's not it doesn't work and people need to learn that lesson but sadly somehow i don't think they will mike pence has been trying to get back in the public conversation a little bit and i have a couple moments to show you the first is him getting asked if he would support trump um if he ran for re-election and again you're asking the person who had his Uh, followers, Trump's followers, were chanting, hang Mike Pence. And so it's interesting to see that there's even a question there that Mike Pence would have to be asked that. You would assume he would have already been so outspokenly against Donald Trump at this point, but he hasn't because uh, I guess he's weak. I've said he's very, very bad politically in all these ways, uh, but I do respect what he did on January 6th in not capitulating to the uh, actions that Trump wanted him to but then I also don't respect the way that he acted after which was to be very meek and not stand against the horrible things that were done on that day and just as importantly the uh, build up to it trying to overturn the 2020 election. So uh, take a look at this first though before we look at that interview or that Q&A. Foreign Vice President Mike Pence on Wednesday warned against the growing populist tide in the Republican Party as he admonished Putin apologists unwilling to stand up to the Russian leader over his assault on Ukraine. Speaking at the Conservative Heritage Foundation in Washington less than a month before November's midterm elections, Pence addressed the growing gulf between traditional conservatives and a new generation of populist candidates inspired in part by Foreign President Donald Trump. Quote, our movement cannot forsake the foundational commitment that we have to security, to limited government, to life and to, uh, sorry, to liberty and to life. But nor can we allow our movement to be let astray by the siren song of unprincipled populism that's unmoored from our oldest traditional, uh, traditions and most cherished values, he told the think tank audience. Let me say, this movement and the party uh, that it animates must remain the movement of a strong national defense, limited government, and traditional moral values and life. Yeah, that's something you should have said a long time ago. Of course, I agree, disagree significantly with him on most political things. But if you wanted to keep the Republican Party one of traditional values, blah, 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 maybe you shouldn't have bolstered the Trump message for all the years that you did, right? Mr. Vice President under Trump so I do agree with him though that this weird populist strand of the Republican Party that is very nationalist and um, kind of wanting a little bit of a theocratic government that would be the ideal thing for a lot of these right-wing nationalists um, is dangerous and I guess if I had to choose I would pick the old Republican Party over this new unhinged uh, fully unhinged one but here's the question he got asked in the way that he responded about Trump.
3: Mr. Pence, thank you for
1: being here. My name is George Clay. I'm a PhD candidate in the history department. Uh, Mr. Pence, if Donald Trump is the Republican nominee for president in 2024, will you vote for him?
3: (laughs) Well, there might be somebody else I'd prefer more. You know, what I can tell you is I'm, I have every confidence that the Republican Party is going to sort out leadership. All my focus has been on the midterm elections, and it'll stay that way for the next 20 days. But
0: Okay, um, so you can see there, he goes, I think somebody else talking about himself. Um, but as I said earlier, Trump sicked a mob on you, dude. They were chanting, hang Mike Pence. And all you got is, you know, maybe there's someone better talking about yourself. Weak. Um, But I've concluded. I was thinking about this. I I said many times on the show that Pence could never win in a Republican primary. They are still way too MAGA for Pence to beat someone like Trump or DeSantis. But I do want to see him run only because I know there's some loyalists. I've met a good amount of Pence loyalists who voted for Trump because they respected Pence so much and they like that kind of traditional vibe, Um, who maybe you could get to turn against Trump in the general if they saw Pence and Trump feud over and over during a primary. Who knows? But again, no chance that Pence could win. Um, Very interesting dynamic playing out there. Tucker Carlson uh, weighed in on the Elon Musk purchasing of Twitter, which looks like it is going to go through finally. And I want to show you a couple moments from this very unhinged monologue where not only is he lying and misconstruing the uh, details of this, he's also saying something that is so deeply ironic. It almost makes you laugh, right? If it wasn't so dishonest, take a look first at the opening to this monologue.
4: Why they're so obsessively focused on what you can say on the words you can use because they understand the power of words. And Elon Musk, whatever his faults may be, understands this too. And that's why he's trying to buy Twitter. Not because he needs another company, no. And Elon Musk purchasing Twitter is more than just a potential change to the media landscape. It is a true existential threat to the hegemony of the people currently in charge. Allowing freedom of speech means the possibility of a revolution from below against the forces destroying this country and the West. So everything rides on this. They know it, you may not, but they do. So they've gotta do everything they can to destroy Elon Musk, who was just the other day, a hero to them. He's the-
0: Don't remember that. I don't remember him being a hero, except for, yeah, I do like Tesla, um, as far as popularizing electric vehicles. Electric car guy, remember? They don't even mention his electric cars anymore. Yes, we do.
4: Because he's doing the one thing you're not allowed to do, which is giving voice to people. So since April, they've been trying to destroy Elon Musk. First, they called him a racist. He's from South Africa. He must be a racist.
0: What what does that even mean? We're trying to destroy. Okay, maybe you're talking about other people that you associate with the left, I guess. But people just will be like, yo, that thing you said, Elon Musk, is stupid. Or I think at one point he talked about how he's actually a Republican. And it's like, cool. I don't respect your political views. That's not me suppressing you or trying to... um, take you down in some way. It's just me also voicing my freedom of speech towards you.
4: When it turns out he was too rich to care, they moved on to new tactics. So then NGOs funded by George Soros commanded companies to pull their ad money away from Twitter. We'll starve him out. And then some Saudi prince tried to argue. So then
0: this is funny because um, one of the things that is so dishonest about this is if you kept up with the Possible purchasing of Twitter. It was Elon Musk who was being all weird and wanting to pull out out of it for a while, and then he saw that Twitter was going to try to, um, you know, challenge him legally for doing that, and he kind of swung back around. But then look at this a uh, little bit more from it.
4: You really think about the people in charge to make the contest a little less asymmetrical, to give you a little power, and they're terrified that he will succeed. So what we're seeing is the desperation of a regime, not just a political regime, but a cultural regime, a class of people running the country who feel like they are losing power and they're panicked.
0: Okay, so then he talks about this class of people, you might call them the ruling class, that is losing power. Well, that's exactly what it put, put, you can see here at his uh, lower third. The ruling class is about to lose control. Talking about Elon Musk purchasing Twitter that's the ironic part he's trying to tell his followers this is so interesting that it is an example of the ruling class losing control when Elon Musk buys Twitter why is that ironic Elon Musk is now or you know has been one of the or the richest person on the planet what is the ruling class other than the uber uber wealthy no elon musk purchasing twitter is not the ruling class losing control it's the ruling class gaining more control or the control staying the same actually is more accurate um it's so weird the way tucker carlson is trying to frame this and i loved the way that twitter responded to this Mediaite put together a few people's kind of dunks. We need to have a national conversation on what the definition of ruling class is. True. It's pretty simple. The working class are the millionaires and billionaires who own the companies and the ruling class are the people who work for them. (laughs) And then finally, when the right talks about elites and the ruling class, they seem to mean whoever holds cultural power, even when the right itself holds the political, economic, and other forms of coercive power. And yes, that last tweet is exactly what I tried to articulate so often on the show, and one of the parts of his monologue was going after this particular uh, news pundit and saying that it's the uh, women, the uh, white women or something, the liberal women who are screaming at you, and those are the ones trying to uh, oppress you, and it's just this obsession that a lot of people on the right have with those who maybe hold some cultural power, right? The... Dominant narrative may be leaning at this moment towards um, The liberal ones, okay, but when you talk about the ruling class, you're talking about more than um, Which narrative is popular on Twitter? You're talking about who holds the real as one of the people wrote coercive power um, On people I like to think of the working class versus those at the very top and so this is something Uh, Tucker Carlson does a lot which is try to frame these issues in a way that will completely distract his viewers from the real fact of who holds power in our society which is still the wealthiest it is absolutely still the most politically and um, the most politically powerful and economically wealthy and in that world most very very wealthy people are a little bit more on the right because they want their money to stay in their pockets and the left wants to tax them more and those in political power are still a lot of them completely unhinged of course trump was at the very top of that at one point but then you also have all of these people in the house and senate who are crazy right wingers um, and so that is something that people need to be aware of and you can understand yeah let's criticize the annoying people as i talk about um, often who scream really loud about these somewhat uh, tangential issues uh, on twitter and that's kind of who you think of like annoying liberal But that's not at all the real truth of who's holding the power and who's able to oppress you in the United States. And so it's just a massive joke to frame this event as, you know, one of the people for the average American is stepping in, Elon Musk, to take the power out of the hands of the ruling elite. So stupid. Joe Biden has decided to uh, release more of the oil reserves to hopefully lower gas prices um, in the coming months. So I'll take a look with you at this announcement and then we'll discuss further.
3: Possibly increase American oil production without delaying or deferring our transition to clean energy. Let me uh, let's debunk some myths here. My administration has not stopped or slowed U.S. oil production. Quite the opposite we're producing 12 million barrels of oil per day. And by the end of this year, we will be producing 1 million barrels a day, more than the day in which I took office. In fact, we're on track for record oil production in 2023. And today, the United States is the largest producer of oil and petroleum products in the world. We export more than we import. And I still heard from oil company and I've heard from oil companies that They're worried that investing in additional oil production today will — will — in in case of the — in case demand goes down in the future, and they're not going to be able to sell their oil products at a competitive price later. Well, we have a solution for that. Today, I'm announcing a plan to refill the Strategic Petroleum oil reserve in the years ahead at a profit for taxpayers. The United States government is going to purchase oil to refill the Strategic Petroleum Reserve when prices fall.
0: So um, he's going to release more oil to lower prices. But as he highlights there, then to refill the reserve, um, he is through that making a promise to oil producers that there will be the demand if they up production because that's their concern. You Sometimes, um, from their perspective, you want to keep production relatively low so that you can keep prices up and you'll have the demand necessary. But what he's saying is we're going to spend a boatload of money to refill that at whatever time and thus you'll have uh, plenty of demand to go around. So please do this now to lower prices, which I think is good. So so if companies follow that and you have the reserve oil go into the market, Maybe that makes some sort of dent. We'll read a little bit about the specifics in a second, but it, there, the amount that's being released isn't really going to do that much. And a lot of people are pretending like this is Biden trying to make a huge shift in the midterms. By the time this all gets out there and makes any difference, the midterms going to be over. Um, but I do think it's still a good move, and I like how he went through and debunked a lot of the false claims we've heard from the right on this, and how he said we're. We're headed towards a record production. And then here's Biden getting asked about the question that I mentioned, are you doing this just for the midterm? Mr. President, yeah, what is your Mr. response? I don't hear. Can you speak louder?
5: <laughs> what is your response Ooh. to Republicans who say you are only doing this SPR release because to help Democrats in the midterms?
3: Where have they been the last four months? That's my response. Is it politically motivated,
1: sir, this was no, three not. weeks before the midterms?
3: Look, it makes sense. With, I've been doing this for how long now? It's not politically motivated at all.
0: Cool. Uh, and even if it was, I don't care. Cool. Help help the Democrats in the midterms. If that's what you got to do, lower prices of gas, awesome. Awesome. Um, He can't say that to be clear. He can't say that. I could say that. Um, But then again, this isn't going to make a huge difference. Take a look at this uh, from CNN. President Joe Biden on Tuesday announced the release of emergency oil reserves to combat high energy prices ahead of the busy holiday travel season, but it will be weeks before the barrels hit the market key. The Department of Energy will release 50 million barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, according to the White House, the largest release from the reserve in U.S. history, Biden said. Biden on Tuesday noted that the administration's actions will not solve the problem of high gas prices overnight. Quote, it will take time, but before long, you will see the price of gas drop where you fill up your tank. The release is aimed at addressing the lack of oil supply around the world, but its actual effect may be limited. In 2019, U.S. petroleum uh, use averaged approximately 20.5 million barrels of oil per day. Uh, And in 2020, the U.S. used on average about 18.1 million barrels per day. According to the Department of Energy's Energy Information Administration, the EIA reports petroleum usage was lower in 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So a bunch of words to say that it's not going to make that big of a difference. It's still okay. Whatever dent you can make in the high prices that we have is great with me. Um, this is a completely random Biden moment unrelated um, to this that I just really liked. So I stuck it in here because it wouldn't fill up a whole story, but uh, take a look. Should there be any restrictions
3: on abortion at all? Any restrictions on abortion yeah. at all? So
0: he gets asked, any restrictions on abortion at all?
3: Uh, yes, there should be. What should, there should be. it be? And Roe v. Wade. Read it, man. You'll get educated. Oh, I'm going to ask <laughs> you. <Okay. laughs>
0: he said, read it, man. Get educated. So this I play because I'm so sick. Of the right wing constantly saying, um, Oh my gosh, the Democrats are so radical. They want you to get abortions nine months into your pregnancy. And what I've said before is listen, even if you had zero regulations, that wouldn't be happening. Uh, because think about, please use your, like, put yourself in other person's shoe bone, please. Ready? Okay. You are a woman, you're pregnant. You decide. After, you know, however many weeks, whenever you find out that you're pregnant, not to get an abortion. You hold it. You go through all of the massive physical toll for nine months. And then randomly, for some reason, you're like, hey, this baby is about to pop out. I'm out. And you get an abortion. Does Does that feel like something that would even be logical? Let me do all the hard part without getting the reward that's supposed to be on the other end of that, which is a baby. No, if you're going to get an abortion, of course, you're going to make that decision. Now, the only time that very late term abortions happen is because the life of the mother is um, at risk or they find out the fetus is not viable or a few other reasons. But this image of someone who just randomly decides like, eh, I don't want an abortion or I want an abortion. I don't want this baby anymore is silly. But even, okay, saying we have to draw some sort of line because someone could do it, so what's your, your stance on that? Most Democrats just say Roe v. Wade. It draws the line at viability. In my mind, that's the most logical line um, as well. So Biden's saying there, why are you asking me this? Go read Roe v. Wade. That's my stance on it, viability. And I really like how he, how he did that. He even kind of grabbed on the guy's arm. Go read it. You'll get educated. <laughs> really good, but such an annoying talking point that I hear way too often. On yesterday's show, we talked about, um, Marjorie Taylor Greene posting a photo and in it, she said, I am, you know, honoring the Confederate soldiers of the Wilder Brigade Brigade. And I went on a little bit of a rant because it upset me. Um, and I'm not releasing that as its own clip because we're going to do an updated version of the story today that makes it even more wild and hilarious. But, um, I'm going to use this as an opportunity and then wait because this is just bonkers and then we're gonna look at some interview moments from her as well um, but this is a chance for me to plug you should go to patreon.com if you're watching this on YouTube or listening to the podcast um, but this applies to the YouTube viewers patreon.com slash Luke Beasley and whatever it is five bucks ten bucks a month whatever you can give um, and then you'll get access to the full video version of the show so for example you're watching this And you won't see that first version of this story that I did about Marjorie Taylor Greene, where I got pretty upset um, because that's only accessible to everyone who gets the full show daily. And since I'm doing an updated version, I'm not going to upload two clips that are very similar in the story they tell, but different in kind of the content of them. So patreon.com slash Luke Beasley to get the full show and support what I do. Now, this is what she posted. Tonight, I stopped at the Wilder Monument in uh, Georgia, which honors the Confederate soldiers of the Wilder Brigade. I will always defend our nation's history, ends her with a few photos. Well, why did this get even more bonkers? She sent out an updated version saying the same thing, which honors, but instead of saying the Confederate soldiers, it says the soldiers. I will always defend our nation's history. Why did she edit that? because she found out that this monument is to Union soldiers. So not only um, was she trying to celebrate Confederate soldiers, she was wrong about what the monument stood for. It was for Union soldiers. What? A dummy. Um, but what got me so mad about this? I will always defend our nation's history is how she ends that. And it's a talking point we hear so often about why we shouldn't be taking down statues to Confederate generals or Confederate um, soldiers or whatever. And it's so enraging to me that anyone would want to see the representative go, in this scenario wrongfully, didn't even know what monument she was at, um, go, I love Confederate soldiers, let's honor them, hoorah! when what those soldiers were fighting on behalf of, what you're honoring, is them trying to protect their own ability to uh, own other people. Now, I hear so often from people whenever you talk about the Civil War. Oh, you clearly don't understand the Civil War because it was economic and it was states' rights and it was blah, 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 blah. Shut up for a second, okay? I don't know who I'm talking to. <laughs> you probably don't watch my show if uh, this is addressed to you, but. Um, no, while you're correct, that they were citing states rights and they were citing um, our economy is dependent at the end of the day what are you trying to protect what is the right you're trying to protect with your state's rights you're trying to protect the right to own people and brutalize them and treat them like animals what is the economic factor you're trying to keep your economy dependent on owning people so this isn't to make some you know, claim about if the North's economy was dependent on that, maybe they wanted blah, blah, blah. Doesn't matter. Here's what I'm saying. You can get into that if you're talking about history and you're interested, fine. But what we're talking about here is someone in the modern day to go to a monument and think that it's for Confederate soldiers and go, haha, I'm going to post this because I just love Confederate soldiers. I'm um, going to want to honor them. Is to say you're honoring, word she used, uh, the fight. To keep slavery and what I talked about on yesterday's show is um, you wouldn't go in Germany and see statues of Hitler that doesn't mean that you're erasing the history of Germany right because what she says I'll always defend our nation's history and you hear that a lot Oh wiping down statues means that you're erasing our history no it means we're not celebrating certain parts of it it's not that difficult to understand you can learn history without celebrating what happened. So I think our textbooks absolutely should teach about the Civil War, should teach about the Confederacy. I don't think we should have to walk by monuments that celebrate those individuals. Good thing this monument wasn't to those individuals. Oh, so aggravating, okay. Not that hard to understand, but they pretend to be ignorant so that they can uh, dog whistle the stink out of all these things here's a few moments um, from an interview she did with Charlie Kirk first talking about Brian Kemp
5: I'm grateful to governor Kemp because he did keep our state open Charlie and and that can't be said enough it's it was so important for us here in Georgia especially me being a business owner and knowing I so don't many
4: know I'm not a Kemp
1: guy Kemp <laughs> Kemp pissed me off uh, excuse my language he's not he's not a good person but he's better than Stacey Abrams but I appreciate the sentiment I do think you should vote for Kemp but he's he's not a good person I'm
0: also- So that's interesting at the end of the day even though they pretend like Kemp was the worst thing ever because he didn't fully go on uh, wasn't fully on board with Trump's attempt to overturn the 2020 election they're sucking it up which you would expect but still an interesting dynamic then she says send your kids to trade schools or or go to trade schools not these universities that uh, propagandize you and brainwash you um, or whatever the wording she's going to use But it's funny because her kids and she went to universities.
5: A better job with our policies, Charlie, so that young people um, after high school enter into job training and they get jobs instead of going to woke universities where their mind and souls get completely ruined. And and we have to do a better job with our policies, Charlie.
0: Next moment. uh, Next moment, she criticizes universities, saying it's teaching woke and blah, 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 blah. Um, even though her kids and she went to university.
5: We have to do a better job with our policies, Charlie, so that young people um, after high school enter into job training and they get jobs.
0: Next, uh, she addresses the woke universities.
5: We have to do a better job with our policies, Charlie, so that young people um, after high school, enter into job training, and they get jobs instead of going to woke universities where their mind and souls get completely ruined. And and so that that's where my heart is at, Charlie. You know my kids are age 19 23, and and twenty four, and it's that generation that I really care about, and they're they're being robbed of opportunities. We have to do a better job.
0: Yeah, you understand if you're going to cultivate the right wing movement that Marjorie. Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, wants to cultivate, you gotta go after education first, because what you do in college largely allows you to kind of learn more critical thinking skills and, um, be a little bit more independently minded from your parents and from your community. And you can't have that if you're going to keep people believing such wild things. Uh, next, she says, why can't we just, Forget about race. We're all equal.
5: And this is the sentiment that's coming from Democrats that is so very wrong is this anti-white racism. You know, being American.
0: Next, she addresses the biggest problem in America, anti white racism.
5: And this is the sentiment that's coming from.
0: Next, she calls out anti white racism.
5: And this is the sentiment that's coming from Democrats that is so very wrong is this anti white racism, you know, being American, we're all equal and we need to put aside all of this identity, uh, p- political identity, politics and 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 racist name calling. We just need to all decide that we're all equal and, and stick with it. But that's not who the Democrats
0: are. It's as easy as that, guys. Let's just decide. OK, this is actually an important uh, point, though. First of all, the anti white racism, if there's some people making dumb jokes or or Serious claims, you know, even worse, that are, are uh, like, oh, I hate white people and blah, blah, blah. That's dumb. Idiots. Ignore that, okay? Um, and if you're experiencing some sort of prejudice in your life and you believe it's because of uh, your race being white, then let's have that conversation. But we understand uh, broadly that's still not the reality in America. And then pretending like it is, is is pretty wild. But more importantly, at the end there, she says... Uh, Why can't we all just believe that we're equal or let's just all um, see that we're equal? Okay, I agree with you. That would be wonderful. But actually what you're doing in trying to do the whole we're all colorblind thing is standing in the way of us actually being equal. Because what do you have to do whenever you're in a not equal society and people are hindered more and hurt more in certain ways based on their race first you got to solve those problems once you solve those problems you could actually develop a society where um, you're not having to worry about that in your economic opportunities um, whatever it is but to fix the problem you have to speak of the problem you have to be aware of the problem and so of course race is gonna have to come up whenever it's still a very real thing in the way that people's lives um, are treated and the way that they go and the opportunities that they have and so by trying to say let's just ignore that whole thing we're all equal come on now i wish that was the case but it's not yet and as long as it's not we do actually have to speak about these issues and recognize um, race is a very real phenomenon and in fact in the lives of people and the way that, that uh, affects their life so um, incoherent from Marjorie Taylor Greene as always and just an incredible moment. She is trying to celebrate these Confederate soldiers while getting it wrong and is actually celebrating Union soldiers, which I would support, um, and misunderstanding what it means to learn history versus celebrate history and then a normal bizarre interview. Crazy stuff. Thank you all so much for watching and listening to today's show. Um, I'll see you tomorrow.